0: Welcome to the All Things Blues
1: and Southern Rock Podcast, a southern storm of bold, liberating rock shot through with blues, soul, and gospel. And now, your hosts for the show, Brian Jones and Jason Johannes. Welcome back to this episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. We thank everybody for the downloads. We're closing in on a thousand, which makes us feel pretty good. And uh, certainly always pleased with everybody participating on the Facebook page. With me is always Jason. And how are you doing today, Jason?
2: Great, Brian. How are you?
1: Good. Good. We uh, sounds like we both had mellow Thanksgivings to, you know, yesterday. Very small gatherings. Yep. Is, you uh, know,
2: got to be healthy so we have a good Christmas. <laughs> but at the same time, it was nice to be relaxing at home and not having to worry about much.
1: Right, right. It was a good day. So... Uh, we have uh, some guests coming up who just happen to be a three-piece band, and uh, so our, we wanted to talk about your, our, you know, some of our favorite three-piece bands. And I don't know if you want to go first. Or you want me to go first? How about Why don't you, go you take first?
2: one? You want me to go first? Okay, I'll go first. So there are a lot of three-piece bands. So I, I knew some that were absolutely some of my favorite bands out there. Uh, Cream, you know, Cream's a classic band. Although there's some little rumblings about Eric Clapton right now that aren't good, but I'll throw Cream out there. ZZ Top, great band, blues band, kind of southern rock band. Um, love those guys. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, that was a three-piece. Um, Motorhead, which I really like Motorhead because I was in a lot of metal, um, and then. A band I like a lot who just lost their lead singing that was a three-piece, The Outfield. So those are some of my favorite three-piece rock bands. What okay. about you? What are some of yours?
1: I didn't know The Outfield was a three-piece. Um, yep. well I also I, I have ZZ Top now. I I when I when I first got into, you know, became aware of ZZ Top, it wasn't until like the you know, the sharp dress man Eliminator, yeah. car that and then they kind of they kind of went into a pretty eighties-ish kind of sound.
2: Definitely. So my
1: my really getting into them more was, you know, lately. I, I saw them, like, way back in 91, but I just saw them a couple of years ago here in town, and it was just spectacular. So they definitely definitely are, you know, up there. Um, outside of our genre, I guess, kind of, but King's X is one of my favorite three-piece Love bands. King's X. You know? Uh, and, I th- and I think that coincidentally, I'm pretty sure... That uh, I don't know if th- all the way through their career in ZZ Top's, but at one point they had the same manager, I believe a guy named Sam Houston, I think. Huh. Um, so that's pretty cool. And uh, I also uh, really dig the North Mississippi All Stars, of course, is Luther Dickinson and Cody Dickinson, and you know, in their peak lineup, they had Chris Chu on base, and they've had other people on base since then. But they're they're spectacular three piece. So that's like government
2: right. mule when they first came out. They were actually a three piece BAM and they got offshot from the Allman Brothers, but they gained people over time. I would have included them because they're one of my favorites,
1: right? And that's a good point, you know. And uh, you know, you're right about cream. I thought about them too. Um, I wasn't particular. I mean, I respect the heck out of them and they're amazing. Um, but uh, I wasn't, you know, haven't really ever been like super fully into them all the time. But uh, nonetheless a great band and uh, so we had a chance to talk to a new newer good band great band and uh do not you tell the listeners who that is Jason yep and keeping with our theme of three-piece rock
2: bands is the the band is southern governor out of Virginia and they are I called them a new band I guess they've been around a little bit but they're newish to getting the record out uh, and, and things out there but it's a br- it's a band of three doing some heavier southern rock jams, and I really like them. Uh, they sound like a mix of maybe some 90s hard rock mixed with southern rock. So um, interesting sound. I dig them, and, and they get a lot out of those three guys. What do you think?
1: Oh, I I have been listening to them. You know, I ordered their CD and a T-shirt and, like, a poster, and I'm just waiting for that to get here. Um, also, what's very cool about them, um, Chris Robertson, the lead singer-guitar player from Blackstone Cherry, produced their record, And they cut that record down in the studio, a studio in Kentucky that's owned by uh, Ben Wells and John LaHan from Blackstone Sherry. So I think that you can hear a lot of that influence in there, you know, and just from that, I've been listening to a lot of Blackstone Sherry as well. So, you know, and of course, you you want to trace that further. And I think they said they didn't necessarily, uh, the guys in Southern Governor don't necessarily have the Kentucky Headhunters connection, but uh, close to it, you know, and Um, also them you know mentioning their you know some ties with Ricky Medlock is pretty cool so it's um, really
2: interesting all these bands that we've been speaking to lately the connections with the Kentucky Headhunters and Blackstone Cherry I mean those are two common names and two bands we keep hearing about
1: yep yep all the time yeah so without further (laughs) ado uh, I know you guys will all enjoy our interview with Southern Governor (laughs) welcome back to this episode of the all things blues and southern rock podcast we're back again here uh jason and i we've got uh, some uh, awesome guests and we always do and once again uh we've uh, got uh, some great guests as always i right, was throwing over to jason why don't you tell us uh, who's with us uh, this evening
2: yep thanks brian you know we're we're very glad to have This brand new, up-and-coming Southern rock band out of Virginia by the name of Southern Governor. Welcome, guys.
3: Thanks for having us. Appreciate it.
1: So I know you guys aren't specifically brand new. I mean, it's kind of newer under the scene. Um, One thing It's awfully unique where we got three brothers. So uh, why don't you just kind of introduce yourselves real quick and tell you what you do in the band.
3: Yeah, so I'm Pat. I'm the oldest. I play uh, guitar and sing
1: yeah i'm josh and i play drums i'm stacy and i play bass cool so how did this come about i mean it just kind of naturally for you guys as brothers just to like you get instruments and say hey let's start a band and
3: yeah um well it kind of all started our parents got us each an acoustic guitar for christmas and uh we took some lessons for a little while and from there i mean over the years We would always play together a good bit, just all three of us guitar playing, and then uh, we started taking lessons from this one guy in town, and he had this program. I'm sure you're familiar with the School Rock movie. Yeah, it's kind of something similar to that, um, where we were taking guitar lessons from him, and it kind of got to a point where we were we kind of learned the basics, you know, all the you know the stuff you needed to know, kind of thing. And there wasn't a whole lot more he could really do for us. He felt like, I mean, obviously he could teach us songs or something. But, uh, anyways, he had this program called the Rock Room, and he would find like other people and try to like put a band together around you with like the music you wanted to play. Uh, long story short, that's kind of how the band originally started, and then from there we've just kind of kept. You know, plugging along and through member changes and stuff. It's always been us three, though, since
1: the beginning. Okay. So, so when was this when you guys got the acoustic guitars? Like, how much? What's the age difference between you guys? Uh, there's like what, maybe
3: one year difference between all of us? Maybe oh, two years between me and Josh.
4: So.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it might be two years between yeah. me and Josh and then one year between Josh and Stacy. But, uh, but yeah, we got. I think those guitars we got, like 2005. Yeah, 2005, 2006. Probably December of 2005. I don't think we actually started playing until like I don't know 2006. But we were so, pretty young.
1: So how how does a tradition or how does it transition to where someone like decides? Okay, I'm gonna play drums. I'm gonna play bass. How did how did do, how did that all formulate? Uh. Yeah, so, like like I say,
3: when we first started playing, we all three played guitar in the band, and in this area, at least, it's kind of, can be hard to find people our age that wanted to play the music we wanted to play, so the majority of the members we had in our band when we first started, we were playing four-hour gigs, like, at bars and biker rallies and, you know, pig roasts and stuff like that, but we had, like, a drummer and a singer, and uh, bass player and all of that, uh, but they were all in their fifties or you know around that age, so they had commitments and you know families and kids and all of that. So it kind of just to make a long story short, after going through a lot of different members and trying to find our own way, Josh decided to just pick up playing drums, and then Stacy picked up playing bass, just kind of make things simple and you know keep things moving.
1: And as brothers, of course, in rock and roll, you know, there's always that kind of, uh, kind of that stereotype of of brothers not getting along, you know, of course, with the Black Rose, Chris and Rich Robinson, and there was others before them, but uh, how does it work for you guys? Yeah, I mean,
3: it's in the early days of starting, we definitely would fight, it was like Skinnered back in the day or something, we'd be (laughs) just fighting or whatever, but we've calmed down since then, I mean, you can't really hate each other and still play music for a living kind of thing. Well, I mean, I guess people do, but it just makes it terrible.
1: So what what was the scene there where where you guys are from growing up there were like were places to play or did you have to go out further regionally? Uh, you want to take
5: that? Yeah. There's a couple bars around in Winchester itself that um you could play at, but uh a lot of the stuff we went out of state you know, we went to Florida before and Kentucky a lot,
3: places like that. But, yeah, I mean, starting out, the, a lot of the bars wouldn't even let us play there because it, it seems like when we first started playing, it was more of a, a click. Like, unless you had a dedicated following kind of thing, they wouldn't even let you in the door to play a show, really. I mean, thank God for dear friend of ours, Brian Holt, who's since passed away because he's the one that kind of, he had a band local from the area called 8 Live Spin and they started letting us open for them when they were playing and that started us in the actual bar scene but for years and years we would play pig roasts and show up at the like our local Harley Davidson would have like a I don't know like a, what, a poker run kind of thing and they would need a band or something we'd go do stuff like that but we did Moose Lodges too and yeah,
4: yeah moves, Moose Lodges
3: and Uh, things like that, but uh, you know, we kind of got out of doing a lot of that because we didn't want to keep playing cover songs for a living, Mm -hmm. so we just kind of made the switch around 2000, about 2011, I think, is when Josh started playing drums, like, full-time, and from there, we just went all original.
1: Okay. I was going to ask, you know, how long did it take to develop your sound, and at what point did you, and he just told us there when he crossed over (laughs) to. Just doing original. So when do you become a Southern governor and what, what does that name come from?
3: Yeah, so when we first started, we were under the name Blackjack, which was just kind of a, I don't know. It was seemed cool at the time, but uh, that was in 2009 when the band first started. I think we changed the name in like 2010 because uh, apparently we didn't know it, but there's another band in our area called Blackjack. It was Cruz... Cruise ship band and threatened to sue us and
2: all that, so
4: (laughs) we had to change it. (laughs) I had
2: the same thing happen with with my band. We had to change our name after doing two albums because there was another band. So we were we were the the Rebel Set. There was a band called Rebel Set out of Tempe, Arizona that was touring the Southwest and they threatened to sue us over the the the, so we had to change the name too. That's an obnoxious.
3: Yeah, I mean they didn't even reach out and just like, hey guys, you're using our name. It was like full blown, hey. Just so you know, we're going to have to seek legal action if you don't change your name, you know, immediately kind of thing. So Similar uh, to us. Maybe it's
2: the same band, a bunch of assholes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, The name, our dad came up with it. Uh, I I don't think there's like a great explanation of where it came from or what it means or anything like that. It's just he came up with it. We were sitting around. Uh, I think the whole family was camping, and we were trying to figure out a a new name, because we had an article that was going to air in the local newspaper or something like that the same week or the week after, so we had to, like, it was kind of crunch time to figure out a band name, but uh, that was in the list of, like, maybe five or six
2: other band names. I had a whole page.
3: Yeah.
5: Yeah. (laughs) It's a good name,
2: like... For the style of music that you guys are doing, like Southern Governor and I think you're pretty close to like Washington, D.C. and all that, too. So, you mm-hmm. know, it goes with the style of music you're playing and sort of where you're kind of geographically located.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's I don't know if we really totally dug the name when we first named the band that. But it kind of because for years we kind of felt it sounded almost like a Leonard Skinner tribute band name or something or, you know, something like that. But uh, it's kind of stuck though, and I mean we've had a lot of a lot of people compliment our name. Yeah, uh, I mean Ricky Midlock of Leonard Skinner himself told us he dug the name
2: too. See, so. you got you got blessed <laughs> by Southern Rock royalty. No, it's a, actually it's a good name. Like I think it's, it's super cool and it's uh, easy to remember as well too.
1: Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a badass sounding name, and so now now you got to get yourself an opening slot on the Government Mule tour. There you yeah, go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The Government Southern Rock Tour. That, see, you know what? <laughs> Your sound, though, would fit in really well um, with Government Mule. You've got mm-hmm. that heavy, kind of a heavy rock sound, but also with with the, the blues and, and Southern Rock mixed with it, too. You guys would just be kind of a natural fit to play with them. Uh, is that a band that you guys like, that you're inspired by?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we love Government Mule and a lot of the other bands that are kind of in that genre as well. I mean, but I mean, we... We play all kinds of shows. It's kind of unique. I think it's cool being a Southern rock band, especially nowadays, because especially a band like ours, because we're so heavy. Mm -hmm. We're a little heavier than most Southern rock bands. um, But we can play more, I guess, lighter shows with like, I wouldn't say like old school, old school country or something, but we can kind of hold our own with a lot of different genres, you know, and not kind of stick out too bad.
2: Yeah, you know, you pick up on something really good. A lot of the bands that we've spoken to on this podcast, um, like, uh, you know, Georgia Thunderbolts and we just got done speaking with Stone in Kind of the same way, like you guys, like this new generation of Southern rock bands really has multiple genre capability, whether you play with a country band, a rock band, Southern rock band, kind of classic music. It's kind of a good spot to be in because you guys all are so versatile or flexible.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we'll play. I mean, at times we'll play freaking heavy metal, like shows and stuff or yeah. festivals or whatever, and we'll be the only like rock band there, and everything else will be screamo, which kind of works to our advantage because if you listen to freaking screamo and like that <laughs> heavy stuff all day long, and we yeah. go on there and play, and, of course I don't know. We just do our lot thing. Of feedback
5: on those shows too, though, because all their guitars would be all scratchy and you can't even understand what it is (laughs) and then we come on there and people's like man this sounds great
1: (laughs) yeah i don't think you can really put you guys in any specific category but you know you have you know you have like what jason was saying i have a friend that coined the term hard blues and i think you guys are kind of like to me like hard blues and not necessarily in a chicago style blues kind of way but just (laughs) you got that heavier you know thing but still southern enough it's a little bit unique you know and it's uh you know i know you guys uh for your record um it uh chris robertson from blackstone cherry produced that and and I'm, my first couple of listens i thought well it sounds a lot like them but then as i as i listened more i could tell the difference but uh, how did that come about how did you guys hook up with him
3: yeah that's pretty cool uh I mean, we we became friends with Chris and the rest of those guys around, shoot, not too far after we started kind of playing as a band. Uh, back in those days, they were kind of just starting to blow up, so they weren't, like, unreachable, I guess, on social media. Now, I mean, their social medias are just blasted with people, and, you know, you might get a hold of them, or you may not they get so many messages a day, but... Um, we just fell in love with their band though. I mean, they're like one of our favorite bands ever. So it's, and that's a lot to do with our sound too. But, um, originally kind of how the whole thing started was we bought a couple guitars from Chris when he, uh, got a, I think it was a PRS endorsement like mm-hmm. around 2011. So he was selling a couple of his older Gibsons that we bought from him. And that kind of like first got us like kind of talking to each other, I guess, kind of the connection. And then, right around 2012 like the end of 2012 they were coming off the road from that tour they did off of their third record and a couple of the members had created their own like studio in their hometown and they started like recording bands and stuff so uh they reached out to us i believe or we might have reached out to them i can't remember but uh we worked it out to where we went down for like a whole week, a little, little over a week actually to record a record down there with them. And, uh, what it was is, a, uh, Ben, the guitar player and John, the bass player and a couple of their crew guys owned the studio. Chris didn't have no ties to the studio, but, uh, we kind of, because we were friends with Chris first and he's known us for a while and we bought all kinds of stuff from him and all that. But, uh, He, uh, we asked him if he'd be willing to produce it because he he's done he's produced a few other bands before that time, but it wasn't like, you know, it was kind of more of a one-off thing. Like the uh, Ben and John, they were actively producing people at the studio, but uh, like I say, we reached out to Chris and Chris agreed to do it, and I mean he really took, I think that's kind of when our sound really started to shape to what it is nowadays because when what we went down with and came out with is it's not that it's completely different, but it was just refined and it really took working with him and kind of getting in the studio for the first time and really kind of hone into what we wanted to sound like, like we what that record sounds like and what we sound like now is what we had in our head that we wanted the band to sound like. But really going in before. Before we worked with Chris, it didn't exactly sound like that. So Chris really helped us kind of get to that point.
1: Um, so for the listeners that, that might not know or haven't heard it, why don't you can we talk something about that first record? Tell us the title and just talk about the record, how it came about. And Well, you, you kind of told us how it came about, but let's, <laughs> let's get the record title and just talk about what that record means to you.
3: Yeah, so the record's called It's My Time. Uh, it's nine songs that we recorded in Glasgow, Kentucky um we i think we went down with like maybe around 13 or 14 songs and we booked i think seven or eight days it was a monday through friday we took the weekend off and we booked the next monday and tuesday but we actually got the record done that monday so uh that's what like seven days or so but uh we had um A lot of songs that were written kind of in the studio, they were were reworked in the studio, I should say. Um, And from there, it really kind of took shape to what it is now. Um, Memphis Train, the new single, was actually a demo we went down with, uh, but it didn't make it on the record.
1: So since then, since that record came out, it's just been just like a lot of touring um is there any new music in works or is there a new record at all in the works and where where and you released the single in september correct
3: yeah yeah so between now and when that record first came out we've been playing a lot of shows just kind of getting our name out there before we put anything new out uh it's kind of time got a little bit away from us there we didn't quite realize how long it had been since we put something out kind of thing but uh we've just been recording like we have our own studio set up here at the house. So we'll write songs and just kind of track a rough idea of the song. And, uh, once it gets kind of a good representation of it, we'll just kind of put it aside and just stockpile it. So we have tons and tons of songs stockpiled for a new release that we're currently working on. But, um, we were trying to pitch it to like record labels and stuff like that. But, its kind of got to the point right now where we we're just kind of we're just gonna put some new stuff out and just keep building the name you know um instead of trying to keep everything hush hush like in the vault and it don't get released unless it's on a label or something mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that was kind of our mindset originally, but I don't know today's in today's world with social media, you can kind of do just as good without a label at the moment so where was uh, where did you cut that single? Yeah, Memphis Train we cut here at the house. We did that all ourselves. Uh, it was produced, um, produced by us. We recorded everything on it, and then we sent it out to get mixed and mastered.
1: Okay. Um, so, where do you see yourself? I mean, amongst your peers. That when we were uh, kind of getting hooked up here on Facebook, we had some mutual friends, and Jason mentioned before, you know, the guy, you got a guy or two from the from uh, from uh, the Georgia Thunderbolts guy from from uh, Tennessee Champaign. You know, like, who, who do you consider, you know, your peers, you know, are those guys or, you know, where do you see yourselves fitting in with all that or where do you see yourself, you know, what scene are you part of?
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't really know the Georgia Thunderbolt dudes personally yet. I mean, hopefully we'll probably, I mean, I hope, We'll get to play a show with them at some point. I'm sure we probably will. But they're
2: uh, good dudes. You guys would do well with them.
3: Oh yeah, I've heard they're
2: uh, I'm rocking my shirt today too. <laughs> yeah,
3: there you go. <laughs> Their managers, uh, what, Richard Young from the Headhunters. Mm-hmm. You know, we know Richard and uh, Greg. Greg's a good friend of ours too. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think bands kind of like in our at our level, I guess, would be like Otis. I don't know if you heard of them.
1: Right. Yeah, we have.
3: Yeah, Otis is real good friends of ours, and uh, uh, Tennessee Champagne, I've heard, I'm I'm friends with a couple of the dudes, but it's one of them things where we haven't played a show together either, but mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of bands kind of like our size right now that are kind of on the way up, you know, obviously, Georgia Thunderbolt's just got a record deal and all that, which is really cool, but uh, like Otis, uh, there's another band uh, called Kiss Kiss Bang from Kentucky. They're, uh, they're kind of right around the same area, Otis and Black sanctuary and all those are from, but uh, yeah, kind of right in that, that,
1: you know, vein. And you guys fit in so well with, you know, with, you know, the, the whole purpose of this podcast is to celebrate, the, you know, I don't know if you want to call it the new Southern rock movement or scene, but there are all these great bands and younger bands and, like I just mentioned, you know, and they're also down in Mississippi. You got Magnolia Bayou, you got Tyler Bright and the Shakedown out of out of Nashville. Them Dirty Roses out of Nashville, Stone Senate out of Nashville. You know, all these, you know, these just great younger, somewhat younger, you know, uh, Southern bands. Then you got like guys that have been around for a while. Of course, we really consider Blackberry Smoke to be like the flagship of this entire thing. They're just like kind of like the kings and yeah. the Whiskey Myers and. And so it's just, it's, to me, it's really an exciting time in music, even though it's really kind of an underground thing. What's your take on all that?
3: Yeah, I mean, Blackberry Smoke, Blackstone Cherry, Whiskey Myers, all of those are kind of like pioneers, I would say, of like the new coming of Southern Rock. I think what you said is right, though. I mean, I think Black, Blackberry Smoke and Blackstone Cherry were probably the first to kind of come out, but Blackberry Smoke really kind of drove home the whole Southern Rock new thing like when blackstone cherry first come out a lot of people called them southern rock but they were kind of more labeled as just a rock and roll band they've right. kind of went more in the southern rock direction but uh yeah man those those two bands for sure blackberry smoke blackstone cherry and then the new skinner the new skinner was a lot of i mean we listen to that stuff all the time too so we definitely you know it's big influences
2: yeah, so kind of, go, what are some of your influences, too? Because, you know, for me, when I listen to you guys, definitely you can hear the Southern rock, but I think you guys have almost like a 90s alt rock. W- we called grunge back in my day when I was in college in the 90s. Like, So uh, kind of what influences you, your sound?
3: Yeah, I mean, probably like, I don't know, some of our favorite bands would be like Leonard Skynyrd, obviously is our favorite band of all time, all three okay. of us. Like all three of us have pretty similar, like, music tastes and stuff, because we grew up together and we listened to the same stuff. Yeah. But uh, I would say, like, Leonard Skinner, Foo Fighters. So, I mean, that's kind of, you right. know, the two sides of it, I guess. And then you got Blackberry Smoke and Whiskey Myers and um all of the new Southern Rock stuff. And then, I don't know, what all... You got Classic Country. Yeah, we're big Classic Country fans. Bluegrass, just anything like that.
2: Yeah,
5: audio slave. And, yeah, we're big there audio. Slaves,
2: yeah. Well, I figured like you almost had almost a little bit of a Soundgarden ish sound mm-hmm. to it, right? And I was
4: I was yeah. expecting
2: you guys were going to say like Soundgarden, but you said audio <laughs> slave. It's pretty yeah. darn close. So <laughs> I like I
5: like both of them. Yeah, they there. You know, Rage
2: Against the Machine with Chris Cornell. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's awesome.
5: Yeah. yeah, there you go.
1: You guys got any blues artists that you that you're influenced by or you look up to? And if you ever do you ever hit any blues festivals? whether it's playing them or, or just going there as a spectator.
3: Yeah. I haven't went to any like honest to God blues festivals, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure we probably all are, but speaking for me, I'm a huge like Stevie Ray Vaughan fan and, you know, ZZ top, even though they're kind of a, I don't know what you would consider them, but they're, they're a blues band, I guess too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, uh, what was it, Cream's kind of bluesy, but they're kind yeah, of rock, sure. yep. you know, and then uh, Free, Free's a big one.
2: Yeah.
3: I mean, I'm more of a fan, or I would say probably we're more of a fan of more of the edgier blues, you know, mm-hmm. more leaning on to the rock and roll side, but I mean, B.B. B. King and all of the, Albert King, you know, all the greats is right up there too, though, you know.
2: you to any of the modern stuff like Gary Clark or anything like that these days?
3: Yeah, Gary Clark's Clark's cool and uh, Joe Bonamassa. Yep, love Joe Bonamassa.
2: Well, you guys both play SGS, you and Gary Clark, right? So yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, Rival Definitely.
2: Sons is a
5: good one too. Yeah, Rival I've, Sons is really cool.
2: Yep, no, that's they've been around a while too, and they're they a really strong. And you know, they're considered Southern rock band, but they're almost one of those two that are almost like a mainstream rock band too, and kind of kind of like you guys can probably fit with a lot of different um, uh, groupings.
5: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: You mentioned uh, Cream and ZZ Top, so is that something that's like kind of like were you into them at times when you also weren't a three piece, or more when you were? Is that a deliberate like influence, like before or after just being a three piece?
3: Well, I would say like our introduction to Cream would be Skinner's version of Crossroads, like when. Mm listening to it we thought that was a skinner song you know kind of first listening to it but through alan collins you hear eric clapton and kind of you know that whole thing because i mean a lot of people don't really realize but leonard skinner was trying to sound i wouldn't say trying but they sound a lot like cream and free and like because those were the bands they dug growing up but uh i would say like when we were first starting out it was just kind of balls to the wall, just Leonard Skinner, Molly Hatchett, the classic Southern rock bands. Um, we didn't really want to go three piece to tell you the truth, but we just didn't. We were just having so many problems trying to schedule everything with members and, you know, just keeping everybody involved, I guess, because all of the members we've had have been really great people and we're still friends with all of them, but it's just kind of trying to make it as a career and move forward, you know, I'm sure you probably had the same experience, but we, uh, the three-piece thing was only supposed to be kind of temporary, but it's kind of, I wouldn't say that it's totally temporary, but it's definitely a unique sound because there's not a lot of three-piece Southern rock bands right now that I know of. So, I mean, it's definitely more of a callback and kind of a little bit different, Compared to like a Blackberry Smoke or Blackstone yep. Cherry, where it's dual guitars, you know. Well,
2: it's like the original Government Mule, when they came out as a, as a power trio, right? When when they got rolling, you guys are very similar in that regards, and also with again with a little bit more of that harder edge sound at the same time. And you bring up Cream, right? Another another power trio at the same point too. So those are really good, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, bands that sort of influenced you, and you guys are out there playing and. Your sound's heavy, too. Like, you know, you really don't notice it's a three-piece band because all of you guys are really, really good at getting, uh, I think, all the all the sound out of those instruments. It really kind of fills it out, even though it's three of you.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's been a, a little bit of a experiment trying to make sure that it sounds like a four-piece, but it's really a three-piece. Because I guess I probably should mention, when we first recorded It's My Time, we were a four-piece at that. That was kind of like the last few months of being a four piece um Stacey was still playing guitar so there's a there's one song on that record that we can't really pull off live to the same sound that's on the record we could probably play the song and it would sound a little you know its own way but uh a song called Fred that's that's a little bit hard to replicate live but we're always been sticklers about if we can't play it live then we're not going to record it you know but uh or at least that's been our, you know, goal up until this point, trying to make whatever we record translate live just as well. You know, obviously when you're in the studio, I'll add like an extra guitar track or something, but I don't usually do multiple guitar tracks that are different guitar parts. So it's just kind of doubling what I have just to kind of Mm -hmm. make it louder. But uh, it took a little while to get the frequencies to work out where, you know, my guitar wasn't covering up Stacy's bass and vice versa kind of thing, just making everything kind of gel.
1: Do you find it uh, more natural, uh, yeah. the three of you being brothers, is that you guys, three guys playing together more telepathic? Was, was there any sort of like, you know, playing like music difficulties when you had a fourth person? Has it been just more like, more just natural? Do things fall into place more just with the three of you? And, and is it really super telepathic as brothers? Uh, there might be a little bit that, of that there, but uh, I don't think we
3: truly really had any issues with like playing with other people, I guess, like communicating and stuff. Uh, I think maybe the biggest issue would be with some people being that we're all three brothers and then them not, being, you know, kind of one of them things, but uh, Mm. we never really had any issues, I would say, but uh, definitely when all three of us play, I mean, we can just sit down and jam and just kind of, we won't even talk to each other. We'll just play, you know, but uh, I don't know. I mean, we could do that with other people too, though. It's all about just finding who gels. Like, I mean, we had some amazing, amazing musicians, you know, over the years that we could just jam you know for hours with and not talk to each other as well kind of like it was natural but uh you know
1: yeah and as as much as you guys are like really super heavy and all that with the three of you it's also very it's a like a clear or clean sound i mean you can hear all three things just very nice evenly in the mix
3: yeah exactly i mean that's kind of the cool part about it like when we first went three piece it was just really weird because it was empty sounding and that's kind of where it goes back to, like I had to figure out to strum the whole chord and just two instead of just two notes like a bar chord like I would normally do because you get two notes on a bar chord and then Stacy plays two notes. It's full, but just one guitar, it's real thin sounding. But uh, so a combination of what amps we use and guitars and stuff and how we play. Stacy tries to play a little bit more than what your average bass player would play too. But, I mean, if you look at a lot of trios, like Cream and stuff, I mean, those dudes are playing all kinds of stuff all yep. the time. So, yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's other bands that's done stuff like that, too, like Cedar. I've seen an interview where uh, – I can't think of the guy's name, but the lead singer was saying he had to, you know, adapt how he played it live to make it
4: sound real
1: heavy. So, you know, prior to COVID, like, what, what kind of shows were you playing? What size shows? Like um, – you headlining some, opening for other people, like any of your peers that you played with. What 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 was that? What kind of shows were you doing?
3: Yeah, I mean, prior to COVID, we were honestly we weren't really playing too many shows because we were kind of gearing up to do Memphis Train, anyways, before all this stuff happened. But uh, when we were playing shows, we were doing some headline stuff, like in the local area. But we're still kind of small, going outside of the area to where we try to open for nationals as much as possible. So it's kind of just kind of building our fan base kind of thing. But I mean, the year, I guess last year, really, um, 2019, we had played with up until that point, we played with Ted Nugent and Blackstone cherry and shoot. I can't think of all of them, but the Uh, shaman's harvest, shaman's harvest, uh, Anyways, bands of that caliber, I should say. So I mean we were really kind of getting to a new caliber of bands that we were able to play with and uh Tom Kiefer
2: was a big one. There you um, go, yeah. Cinderella, and the solo stuff's all some of my favorites. Yeah, yeah we've played uh
3: we played with him two times now, I think okay. on both of his tours when he released his records. Um they're super nice guys, but uh shows like that. But we'll do uh we try to do more opening for nationals and not really just kinda going out and playing every bar between here and Kentucky or something to where you're just kinda playing for five people here or there, you know, kind of slumming it. But uh I mean we have done some of that, but we've never really done like a true multiple week, you know, thirty day tour kind of thing. It's just kind of been we'll book weekend runs here and there and um I mean we've played with bands like Otis. We haven't played with Otis but bands of their caliber down down their way and stuff we will b- double up shows and stuff or do show shops.
1: but uh but yeah does that help having that kind of that connection to blackstone cherry and that indirect connection to the headhunters does that help at all in building your name or
3: uh i mean i think people kind of associate us with them especially up here because i mean up here blackstone cherry and the headhunters and stuff are people really like they're real big you know what i mean or people kind of view them as this real big band which they are but when you go and play in their hometown they're kind of you know they're the hometown band kind of thing you know you know what i mean but uh Mm -hmm. i mean i think it's definitely working with chris and kind of playing with those guys and stuff definitely helped us um kind of bridge the gap between people you know they kind of associate us with them we've never played with the headhunters yet but
1: uh, i'm sure we probably will at some point are are you guys on a record deal somewhere and you uh, like when it comes to booking and and management and all that like how how, do you have someone that's doing that or do you guys do some of that yourself
3: no we're completely independent at the moment uh we do all the booking ourselves and all of our you know managing and all that i mean The only thing we've outsourced is like mixing and mastering on songs and stuff at the moment. And uh, we hired Paige for a publicist. So, I mean, that's kind of, she's like the first person we've really worked with outside of, you know, ourselves and stuff or people in the, like we'll message like blackstone cherry or something or different bands. Like we're friends with Ricky Midlock. He was able to get us on one of the shows he was doing with Blackfoot and stuff like that. But, uh,
1: you know, aside from that, we do it all herself. Yeah. You mentioned Paige and that's Paige Gregory and I want to give her a shout out for, you know, she uh, hooked us up with you guys. So big yeah, thanks to do. her.
3: Yeah, she's really great. If you're in a band and you need a publicist, hit her up.
1: So how does that work when you're trying to when you're trying to get shows and you're trying to open for people? I mean, is there like a you know, do you, is there like a proposal or a bid or say you want to try to get on, you know, I often wonder that with some of the bigger bands, whatever, if they handpick their acts or how that all works. Yeah. It's kind of a pain to tell you the truth. Like
3: the bigger the show, almost the more the headache. I mean, and it, it, it sucks because like a lot of those are the better shows because we'll sell more merchandise and you're getting a lot more exposure because a lot of those artists, they have a guaranteed crowd that's going to be there kind of thing. Uh, but with that being said, Generally, usually the artists are fine. It's the management that you have to deal with. That's just can some great to deal with others are not. Um But pretty much like. We'll like if we see somebody's coming to the area or somewhere close nearby the area, you know, within driving distance or something, we'll reach out to the venue or reach out if we know, you know, the certain band or somebody that we know that's kind of in connection or a radio station or something, we'll reach out and see if they're willing to kind of put a word in for us. But uh, generally how it works for like national acts and stuff, you can put in for the show, but it depends on the, their management, but pretty much they have to submit a list of bands to the band's management. Like the venue will submit us with like maybe five other bands that wants to open for, you know, the national and then their management will pick. Well, we don't want Southern governor open. We're going to pick this cover band or whatever, or vice versa or whatever. So, I mean, sometimes you get it. Sometimes you don't, it's just kind of hit or miss, but uh, generally those are the bigger shows for us just because of exposure and stuff. But it does kind of suck because those shows you're usually playing only like 30 minutes, 45, if you're lucky. Uh, so that, can be kind of a little bit of a pain to you, know, you don't really get to play all of your songs or really kind of showcase yourself it's more of a quick in and out kind of thing
1: is there any sort of scenes going on in the bigger cities in virginia in your state there yeah i i would say
3: down near richmond is a big big kind of rock and roll scene uh, i know blackberry smoke plays right up. They may play in Richmond, tell you the truth. I can't remember what the big theater is there, but I do know they play there a good bit. Blackstone Cherries played there and Whiskey Myers and stuff. But uh, there's a little uh, venue called uh, the Beacon Theater there in, outside of Richmond. It's in a little town called Hopewell, Virginia, and they get all kinds of like big – we played with Tom Kiefer there twice, uh, Molly Hatchet, um, Blackfoot with Ricky Midlar, um Jackal. Jackal, like bands like that, it's a real big southern rock or 80s like rock and roll kind of scene going on there. So, we can pretty much get on a good bit of shows there cuz we've already played there a good bit. So, the venue owner there's a real nice guy and he usually puts a good word in. But, like I say, it goes back to the bands management. I mean, we've put in to open for you know, like 38 special and stuff like that down there. And we've never actually got the gig, but uh, we've been submitted kind of thing. But uh, I don't know. DC's, DC can be kind of weird, especially around our area. Um, I mean, we've done some shows down in like the Springfield area, kind of where Dave mm-hmm. rolls from, which is kind of considered DC, I guess. Uh, it's definitely more in that uh, hipster kind of uh, – alternative rock kind of thing i think being southern rock even though i know we can kind of fit in with it it's kind of hard selling yourself to certain things like that you know
2: but uh it's definitely unique so no 930 club in washington dc or anything like that
3: yeah not yet at least i mean some of those bigger clubs like that i think you almost have to have Either a booking agency or somebody that has like a good contact because doing it herself, like I've reached out to the 930 Club and mm-hmm. you know clubs of that caliber, and I mean, you're I honestly, you're
5: sell tickets too.
3: No. Well, that's the big thing too. A lot of a lot of those bigger cities, cities like that, especially the DC area, you have to sell tickets. Like up in Baltimore too, like Baltimore area. Baltimore is a big rock and roll scene too, Um, but. The majority of the shows you get on in Baltimore, they want you to sell like 25, 50 tickets guaranteed. So if you don't sell the tickets, you got to show up with the cash for all the tickets. That's Uh, awful. Yeah. So we don't really do that a whole lot.
1: We always ask of the bands that are from the South, it seems to us, and once again, that really ties into the premise of this whole podcast. But it, it seems like people down there in the tradition of music, it's almost something that it's in your DNA or in your, in your genes, it's genetically inclined. It's almost like a responsibility that you rise up to and enjoy that. Is, a, is that my take on that, you know, kind of on the money or? Yeah, I would
3: say so. I mean, one of the biggest, um, like I would say like, I will not I don't know if it was like really our biggest show, but the crowds really took, a hold of us the further south you go. I guess because it's being southern rock and stuff. But uh, we played in Florida, right outside of Jacksonville, um, right after we released "It's My Time." We we drove down for a show where we played with Blackfoot and uh, Molly Hatchet and a, a slew of other southern rock bands. But uh, man, those people down there ate us up because I mean they they thought we were like some big, you know. National touring band or something I mean, or at least that's how they treated us um and they never heard of us before. so it's pretty crazy the the response you get, I think further south, people kind of appreciate it. but I've heard other the, the other way around though too like uh, i I was talking to otis and they feel like they get a better response up north as opposed to down south because I guess people hear southern rock all the time in the south, so the further north you get, if you're in the right places where a lot of Southern Rock fans are, they they eat that stuff up because it's not you know, I'm sure in like Chicago or something like that they're not hearing that many Southern Rock bands play, so it can be something different.
1: So playing that show down in Jacksonville does that get your foot in the door as far as Jacksonville, the city, for other places there to go back and play smaller places or? Uh,
3: I mean. It did, but it didn't. Like, we had planned on coming back, but the the venue, uh, the promoter had booked this fairgrounds or something. It was like a festival, but I I don't know if it was the promoter that, I mean, he's a super nice guy. I'm still friends with the guy, but uh, right after the show went on, he kind of pretty much quit doing the promoting side, and he just kind of does more sound and kind of more of the engineering side. So unfortunately as far as like getting other shows down there, it didn't really do much for us. I mean, we reached out to a few different venues, but it's kind of one of them things where it's really hard to get your name in the door. Uh, unless somebody is friends with somebody else, you know what I mean? If you had a good friend that was friends with a the venue, then it would be so much easier than just sending out a blank email to a venue, you know, cause they don't really, they don't open half of their emails anyways. But, uh,
4: We've got a lot of fans
3: off
5: of that show too, though that still follow our page. So
4: it's been
2: you got to build it organically, right? Going playing in front of crowds. You
4: Mm -hmm. know,
2: nobody's playing anybody on the radio anymore. Um, Yeah, (laughs) no MTV. I've said that multiple (laughs) podcasts. Uh, You just got to go out and play and and build your 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 fan base the old-fashioned way.
1: Yeah. Um, Another thing that interests me about you guys and other bands um like what you guys are doing here i want to say is that you guys don't go running off to nashville to try to you know go there and it seems like so many <laughs> bands go there to, to to have that as a base i'm not, not putting that down but yeah there's something to me that's a little more unique or interesting about bands that go hey we're gonna do this where we're where we're at <clears throat> instead of you know running off to nashville and not and I don't know if that's because it's too much competition there or too much of a corporate music scene, but it's I just that's actually my compliment, you know, to you guys too is like you're, you know, stay based where you're at instead of, you know.
3: Yeah. Dude. Well, I mean, we appreciate that. 'Cause I I think we spoke about that in one of our other interviews and it it really does kind of I mean being from your own hometown, you can sound like whatever you want to sound like as opposed to, like, if we were coming up in, like, L.A. or Nashville, I guess you could consciously try to do what you wanted to do. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like you would probably have to fit in a little bit with the scene. But, I mean, I don't know. There might be bands that are kind of just sticking to their guns. Because, honestly, in our area, we were kind of the black sheep of the whole music scene kind of thing. Because like, we were the only original-based southern rock band that i know of even around here and there's not really that many original based bands now there is but when we first started out it was a lot of a lot of cover bands a lot of what southern rock bands were there was a few you know bar cover band things and there still is but uh i mean we didn't really want to move to nashville and try to do that because we we figured as soon as you move to nashville they're going to want you to sound like whatever's Big at the time, and I mean, that's, that's fine for the if you blow up that day, you know what I mean? But by the time you really get where you're going, whatever you were striving for is not, you know... Like Jason Aldean was big at the time when we first started playing, but not that he's not big now, but the music, the sound of his music and what's going on now is completely different, you
4: know? Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know if you're familiar with Magnolia Bayou at all or if you've heard their music or... Ever met uh, any of those guys? And those guys are from Gulfport, Mississippi. And they said the same thing. They said because they have so much family support there that they can do more of what they want to do and be themselves there. There's so much of a support there. And it kind of sounds like you guys are kind of in this, in that same kind of thing where, where you guys are at. Yeah. I've, I
3: have don't know those guys personally, but I have heard their new single they put out not too long ago. It, it sounds really good. Um, I think, didn't they – are they connected with that other band, uh, Bishop Gun, some way?
1: Yeah, they did. A lo- <laughs> they opened a lot of shows for those guys, and then uh, okay, and then and that's another thing. That's a shame that Bishop Gun broke up. But uh, Burn Sharp, the drummer, they produced. He produced their last record, uh, Strange Place.
3: Uh, okay. And now, course,
1: Travis McCready played some harmonica on there, and I've had Ben Lewis on a couple times. A uh, bass okay. player, he's doing his little solo acoustic thing now. So. Gotcha. I think I'm friends
3: with the drummer. Um, what was it Bernie Sharp or whatever on Facebook? Yeah. So that's yeah.
1: how I know about him. But yeah, that's really cool. Well, what's, uh, what else you got for the guys, Jason?
2: Oh, uh, now it's my, see, this is the best part of the podcast when, <laughs> when I get to throw my random stuff at you guys. It's entertaining for me at least. Maybe you guys won't feel that way. All right. Um, Josh, you, where are you at Josh? Right here. <laughs> um, I really appreciate your your drum style. Like in your video, you're actually flipping the drumsticks and look like you're 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 being very much entertaining. You don't see that a lot these days. Like, how's that come about?
5: Uh, honestly, I just wanted to see if I could do it one day. <laughs> I see everybody else do it, like uh, John Fred from Blackstone Cherry. Yeah, I've seen him twirl the sticks, and uh, R.J. Hale from Hailstorm. I was like, man, that'd be really cool if I could do that every once in a while while I play. Just, you know, do something. But now, it's just kind of second nature. You just do it. But I wasn't really, I wasn't really trying to show off or anything. But uh I don't know. Sometimes it does keep me in time, too, though.
2: Gives you that little extent. delay? No, no, it's really cool because, like, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and a lot of guys actually looked like they were having fun when they were playing and doing all sorts of stuff. So to see somebody... Especially a young crew like you guys look like you're doing a couple things up there. I, I really appreciate that. And then mm-hmm. the drummer from my band, too, is also that's the first thing we picked up on. Like, yeah, that guy's, tw- you know, twirling his sticks. That's yeah. great.
5: <laughs> you ever well, seen that uh, video, the drummer at the wrong gig? No. I forget his name. Uh, he's a really good drummer, though. Oh, I can't think of his name either. I know his name at but
2: the I can't wrong think. gig. Oh, that's when he's like, Wait a minute, I think I have seen him. He's like at a wedding or some kind of yeah, event. Yeah, right? yeah, he's, yeah. he's really showing up.
5: Yeah, kind yeah, of <laughs> like a ZZ You're top not song. doing that.
2: But <laughs> no, you look like you're actually enjoying yourself. So that's that's really good to <laughs> yeah. see. And I think that's cool as hell. So next thing you know, man, you're going to have one of those um, roller coaster drum kits like Tommy Lee and me going upside down You know, yeah. here in a couple <laughs> of years. <laughs> um, what kind of drum sets are you playing?
5: I play DW Collector Series.
2: Okay.
5: Yeah.
2: Very nice. How, now, how did you how did you choose playing drums when you, all you guys had guitars?
5: Well, honestly, like Pat was saying earlier, I technically didn't really have a choice. <laughs> I was like, well, I wanted to hear that from
2: you yeah. instead of from Pat. Yeah, <laughs> you can be honest with us here.
5: But now, honestly, when I started when we were playing guitar, I got to the point where I didn't really feel comfortable up front. I was like, man, I'd really like to get behind the drum kit one day and just see what it's like. So I started watching uh, John Fred Young and Leonard Skinner and bands like that. I just got influenced off of them. Artemis, Artemis Powell, I started playing traditional style, but then it wasn't the right sound for what we were trying to go with the band. So I was like, well, John Fred Young, he's just like full-blown, just beating the heck out of him." I was like, that's pretty cool.
0: But
2: Who's your favorite drummer of all time?
5: Uh. I wouldn't say I really have one, but uh, definitely John Fred Young from Blackstone Cherry. He's like one of my biggest idols. Um, John Bottom. um, RJ Hale from Hailstorm. um, uh, Sheep. They lost it now. You know, what or, I said Neil uh, Peart yeah.
2: like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> he's good, but he's uh, good. <laughs> he's all right. <laughs> everybody says that though. Jason yeah. Bonham, John Bonham. I mean, yeah, those yeah. are you know. Dave Grohl. Yeah, Dave Grohl was one of these uh, compared to Dave, Dave Grohl's good at everything. Like you just got yeah. like he sings, he plays the guitar, he plays bass, he plays the drums. Like that that dude's just insane. Yeah, definitely. All right, Stacy. Where's Stacy? see everybody gets their time in the spotlight (laughs) all right Stacy what kind of bass rig you playing uh I have a vintage uh Fender P bass through a vintage Ampeg Ampeg great 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 amps for basses for sure like one of the top line how did you get into choosing uh that sound and that equipment
4: uh
5: I mean I think it just fits our style Probably the best out of anything because I was using PVs and it seemed like they was real muddy. And Pat actually switched from PV and Buddha and went to Marshall. And with the PVs and Marshalls, they just didn't like gel together. So I ended up getting trying an amp peg, and it sounds a lot better frequencies with the Marshalls and stuff. Every kind of everything just kind of has its own place,
2: yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I think if you're going for more of the heavy metal sound and stuff like that, you would have stuck with your original rig setup. But I think what you got now, it's, it sounds really good. Um, with going from guitar and actually being the second guitar player originally to now playing bass, like how does that influence your playing style?
5: Uh, I mean, I think it helps out a lot because I can kind of play it more like a guitar to fill it up more.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: But also, do I basically kind of do my own thing? But most of the time, I'm playing with the guitars and make sure I'm still tight with the
2: drums. Yeah, no, I think that helps a lot with you guys being a three piece and you taking that understanding of the guitar pieces and bringing over your bass. Like, again, like I said earlier, it really fills out that sound, and it's just kind of an interesting to always hear these guys who. Go from playing guitar to play bass and kind of what's what's their approach to doing that now?
5: Yeah, what I is mean, your? Go ahead. It was a little tricky at first because with a bass you don't really feel like you're doing as much, and you don't really have to do quite as much and make it sound good. But <laughs> that was probably the biggest struggle.
2: Yeah. Well, Pat, you got to give him some time for some breakdown to some
1: bass solos. I think. Let's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> okay, play yeah. bullet. <laughs> Is there a different um, uh, pickup configuration on your bass, there, Stacy? Uh, I noticed uh, some uh, pickup in you know in the bridge position.
5: Yeah, it's, it's got different the, from the. It's actually it was made as a regular P base with the one split single coil pickup, and well, split humbuckers or yeah,
3: I don't know I you, can call I them what you're calling the P base really pickup,
5: it. I guess, but it um. Somebody, like, routed the base out to have a J pickup put into it. And it sounded okay, but it wasn't really in phase right to use and have it sound okay. So, I actually just took the pickup out and just left the cover
2: there. Oh, okay. Hmm. You didn't want to rewire it up yourself?
3: <laughs> no,
5: I actually... You old
2: soldering iron out?
3: Don't, I actually had
5: a guy do some work to it and pretty much I only, only have one knob on it that works, just a volume <laughs> knob. <laughs>
2: all, hey, man, that, that, all, sometimes that's all you need.
5: <laughs> that's all that I wanted because bass, you don't really need the tone knob because right. it's just going to make it even muddier. So.
2: Well, and you can influence, too, like, you know, almost the distortion of sounds and stuff like that, too, by alternating between your, your instrument um, volume and also on your, your amp, too. So, you know, you get what you need out of it
1: i got a Ooh. question about you, that video from memphis training you know uh from an outsider's perspective how does that work i mean are they playing the song like i'll see i've seen like like a little documentary clips on videos like roll sound and i know <laughs> i know josh is actually playing but are, are you guys like are you guys playing is that how it works in a video Are you guys actually play the song and they just kind of sync the actual album track or single track onto that or are you, did you had to do lip syncing or, you know, playing without amps? Or you just, I was looking for cables and stuff, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like you guys were hooked up. How's that all work? It's
5: basically like a Motley Crue live show right there.
1: Oh, uh,
2: <laughs> modern Motley Crue, not old Motley Crue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that uh, don't make you my man, but it's, it's not. <laughs> so listen, I'm a big Motley Crue fan. They were one of my favorite bands in the '80s, and like, I, I, I get so embarrassed when I hear Vince Neil attempt to sing these days. So <laughs> it's all good. I did watch yeah, yeah. the
5: documentary, though. That was pretty neat to watch.
3: Uh, yeah, it's well. There's a funny story about that because what you do is you'll have like a PA speaker, or something playing the recorded version of the song. And then it can be kind of challenging because you're lip syncing to it, basically. But the drums, you can't unless you're just we wanted it to look like he was playing live. So he basically played live, you know, hard and heavy. So the drums were loud, like as if we were playing live, just the amp cabs and all that weren't on. Actually, there was there was no amp heads or anything because it was it's kind of hard to see in the video, but it was borderline raining the majority of the time we were shooting that. So that and the power were, we shot that on our property here in Virginia, but where it's at, there's no power to it. So we were running a generator. Um, so we didn't want to run our amp heads on a generator kind of <laughs> thing. So we just put the cabs there. But uh, yeah, we were just like lip syncing to it. But if you watch the video, there's a couple painting shots where it pans from the right to the left or whatever. Look behind the base cab. There's like a little, pa speaker there that was what we had we just had one pa speaker the whole time and it just blared on josh to where he could <laughs> kind of hear what he was doing um which we had like this real old crappy pa speaker set up that we got when we first started playing like i don't know if we really played out with it but when we first started playing somewhat serious and uh, it was half blowed up anyways like one speaker the speaker worked, but the horn was blown out. And then the other one, the horn worked, but the speaker was blown out. So if you if you hook both together, you got one good speaker. <laughs> up that day. But yeah, we we blew it up within like the first thirty minutes. We had to we had to come get our like rehearsal PA and bring down and run off a generator. And it was it was a pain in the butt doing
5: it. That. Like that's our first music video, yeah. so it we just kind of
2: song. Waited. 8 million times, right? Because you had to do all the yeah. different... Yeah, it's horrible.
3: Yeah. Well, not just us, but the neighbors heard the song. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they could come out and sing all the words and everything, come out to your show and sing, sing right along with you. Yeah, there you go. All right, Pat, for you, you play an SG guitar. How did you get on to playing an SG? Why did you choose that?
3: Uh, It kind of found me, I guess. Okay. I was more of a big... My favorite guitar player is Gary Rosington. From yeah. yep. So he's a big, which I mean, he does play SG on Freebird. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I've always loved the look of the SGs, mm-hmm. um, but I was a big Les Paul fan, like Les Paul guitar. I mean, yeah. Les Paul, the guitar players cool too, but uh, when I first started playing, I was playing Les Paul's majority, but that SG was actually Chris Robertson's from Blackstone Cherry. Okay. Um, we bought it from him back um 2011 I kind of just started it's technically all three of our guitar we all three own it but I'm the only guitar player so I get to play it all the time (laughs) but uh but no man I I don't know that guitar is really special though it's one of them it's a good guitar like you strum it acoustically and it's just got a ghost in it kind of thing you know yeah Uh, it's got the perfect neck on it it used to belong to um Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters he okay. had uh, originally bought it and took the pickups out of it, so now I just have a set of his signature like PAF clones from his uh, yeah. 58 Les Paul. But yeah, I mean, we bought it, and I started playing it, and then I don't know. I just started digging into the – I don't remember if it was because of the looks of it that I started playing it a good bit or if it's just because it's got such a great neck and sound to it. Um, that being it's an original 65 as well. Oh
2: no kidding. Okay. Yeah.
3: yeah. So it's like the only I mean stacy has got his vintage P base, but uh what year is that? Uh I believe it's a seventy eight. Yeah, seventy eight. um so I think we got his first. So it was his base was kinda like the first vintage thing we really had. Um and then we bought a eighty two Les Paul custom from Chris. And that thing sounds really good too. I love the pickups in it. Mm-hmm. but the neck is like a sixties kind of Les Paul neck. A little thinner. Yeah, it's real thin and so blady. So, like the
2: chunky neck then?
3: Yeah, the the SG, I would say, is more of like a 59, 58, Les Paul neck, somewhere kind of around in there. Yeah. Because the earlier SGs had the real blady necks on them, too. Yep. Um, which, I mean, I can play whatever. I mean, I'm not super
2: particular, but I kind of dig that 59 profile. Yeah, you don't see too many SGs with a chunky neck. I mean, all the modern SGs forever have had the ultra. I've got an SG, it's like a 20... 20- 13 or something it's got the thinnest neck that i've ever seen and it's good for lead stuff but man it's just so thin like you can't really do a lot of chords and a lot of rhythm because of it
3: yeah i mean from i just recently found this out the 64 65 era like maybe a little bit of the 63s but kind of mainly 64 and 65 they had the biggest necks on the sgs of that year range and now Gibson's starting to reissue the sixty four SG, so you can finally get one with a thick neck. You know, I never understood that why. Which I mean, I guess some people do like the thinner necks, but
2: and I don't know. Man, if you're a speed player, I think it helps a lot if you're doing all that stuff. But if you're just doing regular stuff, it's it's good to have a little um some a little something to grab into.
3: Yeah, well, I think SGs there's nothing there to support the neck anyway, so right, I never just goes. understood. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, yeah. Because, I mean, even when I'm playing it, which I think mine mine might be having a little bit of issues at the neck where it's kind of, I don't know if it's coming loose or not, but it's definitely got some relief cracks kind of where it's glued together and stuff. Because mm-hmm. that guitar is a factory ordered white. So because most SGs are just, I don't know how they do it. They just kind of sure. paint the red on or whatever yeah. and spray it. Yeah. This is like. From what I read, the that. The factory colors were either one or two different things. Either you ordered it factory color, and if you ordered it, I believe it's just like the natural brown mahogany underneath, uh, which is what mine is because there's spots that's chipped off okay. and it's just regular brown. Yeah. But I did read something where in back in those days, if Gibson had like a SG or anything like an ES335, any of those with the custom colors. If it went through the process and kind of before it got shipped out, there was like a flaw or something in the design, they would just send it back and just have somebody shoot a custom color on it. Hmm. And then they would stamp like a factory second, just like a two on the back. And then they would give it to like a guitar storm, give it at half, you know, a discounted price or something. Uh, to I don't know if you got one with like a factory second, if it's got the cherry red under the finish. I've never seen one, so I don't really know. but. It's kind of unique because, like I say, I don't know how many of they made that were not factory seconds kind of thing.
2: That's pretty awesome, man. When you look at that thing up close, it probably looks pretty badass.
3: Yeah, it's it's super checked, and it, like I have a friend that's got a '63, like an original one, and his has got the finish checking. But I guess because mine's painted and the thickness of the paint, it's just like it looks super vintage, and it's already like. Probably back in the day it was white, but now it's kind of aged to that you know off-white kind of cream color.
2: Yeah. So. Well, favorite guitar players outside of Leonard Skynyrd, who you got?
3: Uh, definitely, like Jimi Hendrix.
2: There we go. Look, look, see Brian's shirt. He's got the Hendrix shirt on. There
3: we go. Uh, Paul Kossoff, Free is a yeah. big one. Uh, Trying to think of some more modern. I mean, Chris Robertson's a big influence, Yeah. Actually, yeah. like solos and stuff. Yeah. Um, shoot, I mean, he played probably two or three solos on our album, anyway. So I had to learn how to play. All <laughs> of <stuff he> <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, exactly. Um, Billy Gibbons is a big one, you know.
2: Yeah, for sure.
3: Uh, but those are kind of.
2: Player.
3: Yeah. Um, Page and I mean all of the. Just you know,
2: all the usual, the, yeah. but yeah, Brian, we've heard a lot about free when we had uh, the Georgia Thunderbolts on. Um, they were really into free and Paul Rogers and and, and uh, bad company, all that, too. So, man, it's great to hear that a really good band from the 70s like that is really some of these younger younger guys are really getting into.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're I don't know if Josh and Stacey are really super into them like I am. I'm sure they probably are, I used to listen to them a lot. Back when we were playing, there's long gigs. Yeah. See, I mean, man, Free had it all. And to think about, they were only a band for, what, maybe one or two years, maybe maybe three or four tops or whatever. In today's standard, that's nothing, you know, for the time they were together. But, yeah, man, they had – it's crazy how some of those bands just kind of came and went and just changed the world within a short amount of time, Skinner being one of them, you know.
2: Yeah, for sure. But you know, Those guys have been around to be able to kick kick around for a couple of generations. Uh, have you ever listened to Humble Pie?
3: Uh, a little bit. I've never yeah, really like, dove super into them, like geeked out or anything, but I've definitely, you
2: know. Yeah, check them out a little bit, too. Like, if you're into free and government mule and all that kind of stuff, they're kind of uh, you know, almost like a precursor to some of that kind of stuff.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: All right, my last question, Brian, before we throw over to you is, what is your guy's worst gig you ever played? <laughs> And it could be worse for any reason, whatever, whatever it is. I do want to hear it.
3: What do you all got? Because I can't remember. <laughs>
2: well, there's a couple. Of them on the stage. You always remember your worst gig. Come
5: on. I would probably say, I mean, the whole gig was good because we were open up for uh, Ted Nugent. But the mm-hmm. worst part of it, they wouldn't let us have water on stage. That's so, random. Yeah, yeah, that's very random. I don't know what it was about that, but they wouldn't let us have water on stage. It was like 90 degrees
2: out while we was playing, too.
3: In a freaking dirt parking lot <laughs> in the middle of the summer.
2: <laughs> so, as a singer, you're getting all the dust in your mouth and getting caught in mouth. Yeah, it's horrible.
3: I, I don't know exactly what the deal was with that. They, you know, they said it was a Nugent rule. I don't really think that was true. I think they were just, they traveled with their own monitor setup and they didn't want to strike their monitors, and they didn't want right. people to. I get it. You tour with a lot of people and a lot of bands don't know what they're doing and they spill stuff. And just half of them's probably trashed anyways because they're just ex- excited to play with Ted Nugent or something. Right. But They were just hard to deal with. You know, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, like some of them are super easy to get along with. And then people like that, they don't really want you there. You're just kind of there because you want to be there, but they have to deal with you. And so it can just be a, a little bit of a tough thing. I mean, they kind of warmed up to us a little bit, I would say, because we had to do two shows with them back-to-back. Yep. Back, and that was the first one that Josh talked about. Um, we got did, pre- you pre- did you
2: get water the second show? Yeah. Well, we <laughs> got show. We actually got water the first show.
5: After <laughs> our dad got into it with the stage manager because her dad kind of just manages us on stage, keeps yeah. track of us. Um, so this guy decided – to get into it with her dad so i'm coming up to the stage with the drumsticks like heck yeah i'm ready to play this show and all of a sudden i see this stage manager and her dad running down the stage steps i'm like great what's going on now and then this guy's like up in her dad's face pointing at him telling him you know he's gonna get us off the show and all of us kind of just surround this guy and like okay if you're gonna try something we'll we'll go down with that
3: Whatever. If we're not gonna play, there gonna be <laughs> no <fun. laughs> Now there was not nothing they could do, really. I mean, I guess they could have pulled the plug, but we kind of played our cards right because they made an issue saying that there wasn't, couldn't have no liquids on stage, and I didn't, I didn't fight him on that. I just kind of went with the promoter and be like, you know, hey man, we need at least some water. Yeah. I All mean, so we're asking for is some bottles of water. And they gave us a whole freaking case. They're like, "Oh yeah, man, don't worry about it. It's all good." <laughs> and then, like five minutes before we played, we sound checked with bottles of water on our amps, and their dudes watched the sound check. Nothing was ever said until like five minutes before we walked out on stage. I walked out with a bottle of water in my back pocket just to make sure that my amp was on before we played. As I'm walking back, he was he kind of made the comment of like, "Well." before you walk back out there, you need to leave your bottle of water back here. Which, it, it was just so stupid. I think they were yeah. just kind of wanting to, it was an authority thing, I think. I, Cause think I mean, are right. Like, we, we're kind of the band where we don't, we're not there to be friends with everybody. I mean, we're super down-to-earth dudes, but we know our role. You're in and out play your stuff and get out of the way kind of thing. And that's what we do. And you, you don't, don't leave the stage trashed either. You yeah, we don't every, leave the stage trashed and stuff. But they don't know us, I guess, to give them the best benefit of the doubt. But pretty much like what Josh said, we got a big heated argument. And then Nugent's actual manager manager had to come, like, chill everybody out. And he's like, after we argued and argued, like, we're not playing Unless we have bottles of water on stage. And, like, the radio station's announcing us going on stage when all this is going on. Oh, wow. So, like, they were kind of... Their hands were tied. Like, if they did kick us off the show, like, people would be like, well, you know, we'll steal kind of thing, but...
2: They wouldn't give us water.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But they, uh, yeah, they let us have each one bottle of water for the show (laughs) that night. And then the next night, they never said anything. There was... The next night we played with them. There was multiple bands, so the, the bands that played with them the next night didn't have water unless you were a national. Because we played with Molly Hatchet the next night, and like Shaman's Harvest was on that show, and uh, they all had water. We were the only local band that had water because we pretty much told them to go screw themselves
5: tonight.
2: The <laughs> you can't be trusted with bottles of water, you know. You haven't yeah. toured nationally yet.
4: Yeah, I mean,
5: <laughs> so. we don't we don't ever ask for anything when we go somewhere. It's like sure. we bring everything we need. Never had an issue anywhere we went. As far as that goes, it's just the one time we opened for Ted Nugent. We ain't allowed to have water.
3: That <laughs> you know, was bizarre, though. I mean,
5: <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. The cool thing is that the second show we played with him up at Charlie Acres in Inwood, West Virginia, I got to meet the uh, drum tech, and he was a really cool guy. And uh, he actually had me on stage playing Shakers on uh, Free For All oh. with
3: Nugent. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of got a happy ending,
5: I yeah. guess, because <laughs> <Yeah.
2: laughs>
3: the guy that was such a like prick to us the night before, like, I don't know if he had to let us on side stage, but like Josh had to at least be allowed on stage because when – Ted Nugent plays. They shut the stage down. Everybody's out unless you're in, like Nugent's immediate crew. Um, anybody that's not in his crew is not even allowed on the stage and stuff, which is kind of standard procedure for most big national acts like that. But he wasn't even actually be allowed to be backstage when Ted Nugent was back there. Really?
5: I mean, big
3: do bands it. do that,
5: man. That's just a that's lot really of random.
3: That, I mean he's not the first one that I've heard that's done stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't hold it against Ted Nugent himself. It's more of a management issue, I think. It's just kind of their way of doing things, and I don't know. I guess fans of that caliber, they can go in and do whatever they want because pretty much they own the stage kind of thing. And that's what the promoter had said on that first show because when they started making an issue, I called the promoter. I'm like, hey, man, I thought we cleared this up two hours ago. You know, like, what's the deal? They're wanting to kick us off, sh- off the show, and. Not let us have water on stage, and all of this was supposed to be cleared up two hours ago. He's like, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta realize it's his show or it's their show, and they own the stage while they're there, so you got to do what they say. He just kind of like totally backpedaled on it. But the next day, like Josh said, Charlie Acres, which Greg Charlie had uh, just recently passed away. God bless the dude. He was the only promoter that I've truly known to stand up for a local, just like up and coming band, because there was been we've played his venue twice now, or maybe has it been three three times, might've been three times, but every time he's been a class act. I mean, he treated us the same. same as he treated like Blackstone Cherry or anybody playing there. And Ted Nugent, it wasn't our fault. Wasn't Ted Nugent's fault but a couple bands had run over their time slot or whatever. And of course, I don't know if you know too much about it, but those big festivals, there's no extra time. So when yeah. somebody's running over, somebody else is getting time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, screwed. usually it's the bands right before the nationals that kind of get screwed out of their time. And that's where we were. We were the last local band to play before the two or three nationals were going on. So the nationals are getting told by Ted Nugent, like, look, Ted's Ted's going on stage at this time, so y'all need to figure it out, kind of thing. It's not our fault that y'all's running over, um, and I, I don't even remember what happened. Somebody had played like an extra band had got booked or something for three show three three uh, songs or something, so it threw our set over like fifteen twenty minutes or something. We only had thirty minutes to play, Ugh. so Nugent's people's telling Shaman's Harvest because they were the band after us, that they're going to have to cut their set short. And they're like, well, we're not cutting our set short, so Southern Governor's going to have to cut their <laughs> set short. So it just kind of went down the line, and then thank God for Greg Shiley. He was like, man, Southern Governor's playing 30 minutes. Whether you like it or not, if you don't like it, you can get out of here. And he told that to Ted Nugent's people. and Nice. They had wow. to. Ted was 15 minutes late that day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think you guys probably got some respect there for standing up for standing Definitely. Up for man. That's awesome. That's badass, man. And
2: almost just totally fighting cool. with Ted Nugent's you know, management. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> no,
3: like I say, that they were so much nicer the second day than they were the first day. I think it was kinda of a little bit of that like button heads kind of thing. But also, like I say, the guy was he might have just had a bad day the first day. Who knows? Sure. It could it be happens. I don't know. I mean, we got this we were the only band there that got to watch Ted Nugent's side stage, so that was kinda of cool. I mean, even freaking Molly Hatchet's people were going to come up to watch Ted Nugent, and they kicked them off the stage. We were the only ones who were.
2: Wow! Nice. Yeah. So I mean, they were flirting with disaster, and they got. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, uh, there goes my dad joke, I'm done, guys.
1: It. I'm out. We're cutting this mic. Um. My last question before we uh before we uh wrap this up, and this is a culinary question, a culinary delicacy that uh I heard you guys talk about it in another interview. Squirrel pot pie.
3: Oh my.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> he wants to
2: talk about that? <laughs> I didn't hear that interview, so I'm very curious
1: I, now. <laughs> I indirectly know someone else from, from from Virginia uh that lives up on a mountain somewhere and apparently makes canned squirrels, so I'm just wondering if it tastes like chicken. <laughs> canned squirrel.
3: Yeah, squirrels, good eating, man. It's greasy, it.
1: right?
2: Uh,
3: somewhat. It's kind of like
2: um, uh, it's a lot
5: like chicken, Okay. but it's got more of a gamey flavor.
3: Yeah.
5: You're not selling me. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had rabbit?
2: I oh, have, yeah.
5: But okay, okay. It's, it's similar to that.
2: Okay. Rabbit's okay. not too bad. Yeah. Rabbit I've had hasn't been too gamey.
5: Yeah. Now, like if you cook gaming foods, you can uh, soak it in buttermilk too, and it'll take it out as well. And it'll
3: tenderize the meat too.
2: Yeah.
3: But yeah. Our grandma, well, uh, our grandpa used to hunt squirrels all the time. I mean, we grew up hunting squirrels and deer and everything with him. And, I mean, still do. But uh, our grandma would make squirrel pie Like, it's not like. Pot pie, it's more like chicken and dumplings, but with squirrel. They call but, it sloppy pot pie. Right yeah, here. or sloppy pot pie is what they kind of call it around here. But uh, she would just make that. You just kind of boil it until it's pretty much falling off the bone. And then you just kind of make a broth to it and then put your pot pie in, like, noodles and stuff. She'd make it from scratch. Um, then you just fry the squirrel on the side, which, truthfully, just fresh fried squirrels a lot better than fried after being boiled. For Pop Pot Squirrel, you know, that's not necessarily the greatest, <laughs> but it's better than nothing. But,
1: uh,
3: yeah, that's kind of where that came from.
1: Well, tell you what, guys, man, I really, really, we really appreciate you guys being on. And yeah, I've grown to love your band and yep. just about ready to get some merchandise. But I just recently moved, so I want to make sure it comes to the right address. I didn't quite finish that, but I will. I want to get your record and a t shirt. And, and, uh, I dig your band, I dig your sound, I dig the three piece. It's just, and, you know, Stacey, I really dig your bass playing. It seems a little more like uh, less is more and simple. And I'm a hobbyist bass player, so I might be able to play along with some of that stuff. <laughs> you, know, you see these guys playing like Seinfeld licks and stuff. It's nice to see someone just holding down a little low end on the bottom. But, yeah, I'm totally loving your band, and I appreciate you guys being here and, you know, as soon as you got some new music out, we're definitely going to be all over that and supporting you guys and doing anything we can to help you out. So just thank you yeah, so, so much for being on.
2: Absolutely. I'm same the same as Brian. I really, you know, I've been listening to your album a lot, preparing for the podcast. I, I like it a lot. And I've been recommending it to a lot of my friends, too, at the same time, too, to get, get you. I'm in Ohio, so get you guys some Ohio love. So when you guys mm-hmm. come through here, you have some fans. Yeah, Brian's a little further away in North Dakota, but, you know. We'll, we'll work on the North Dakota
3: crowd for you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, man. Well, we appreciate you having us on your on your show, and you know, spreading our music and everything, and you know, turning people on to us because we appreciate it.
1: Heck yeah! All right, man. Well, hopefully, we can talk to you guys soon, man. Thank you again. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to- you guys. Right. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. All right. See you next time. See, ya. see you guys. Well, that's our interview with Southern Governor uh i i i love the i love the story of them you know uh arguing to get their water on stage i was just got lost in that it was so so hilarious
2: (laughs) i could visualize it it was playing out in my head like i was just imagining it as they were talking through it it's a it's a really great story it'd make a good skit on like saturday night live or something
1: and at the end of the gig, like, they're the only ones that are allowed on side stage to watch Ted, watch Ted <laughs> they, Nudie.
2: They earn the respect by standing up for themselves and, and threatening to get in a fist fight. And was it their dad or somebody else with them, too, that they were helping yeah.
1: out? Yeah. Just, uh, it's a family affair. Up. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed their talking about, like I mentioned earlier, you know, their uh, their connections to uh, Ricky Medlock, giving them a lot of compliments. And that that's just absolutely huge you know and you know it's maybe repetitive we'll say it again that we keep hearing about blackstone cherry and kentucky headhunters so those guys you know having that kind of kind of uh those kind of roots and that kind of support and in their corner has got to be huge
2: and buying gear from blackstone cherry too that sg's rocking which is really right cool. yeah so, yeah
1: right? And I, I found that i found that clip on youtube from uh blackstone cherry you know playing uh please come in and it's like the very guitar the very sg yep, that... he
2: confirmed he confirmed that was the <laughs> one he did buy too that white sg which is really cool but no and it, it was good it's nice to have all the three brothers on to kind of talk through things and and learn they all started playing guitar and not you know not one of them was a drummer and a bass player and they all sort of switched up and took different things up and to, to hear their approach and what kind of gear they're using and, and some of the stories too and uh that you know those guys were a family affair and one of the things that was thing to me though is they're out of virginia you really don't hear a lot of rock bands or even right. Southern rock bands coming out of right. virginia and kind of the struggles they had with finding places to really play locally and and get involved in you know i can understand that but yeah gosh you don't really hear about too many virginia bands
1: yeah and it, just the fact that they've uh stayed in their their home area you know they haven't gone running off to nashville or anything they've they've doing what they're doing there and sticking it out in their home base. I got a lot of respect for that.
2: I'd love to see those guys live. You know, once we get things open up again and our COVID vaccines are out and we can see live tunes, I hope they come somewhere close to Ohio, or even West Virginia. Cause I'd, I'd really like to see them. I, I dig their new album. I like that heavier rock sound with, the, with the Southern influences with it. And you can really see where I think Blackstone Cherry have taken them under their wing to help them, develop that sound and put that CD out because Blackstone Cherry is very much like a hard rock band with those Southern influences too. But I I really do. I dig that album and I like those guys.
1: And like you said, those guys being brothers and just, you know, they growing up together and they've stuck together and we're kind of seeing that a little bit more with some bands like, you know, the guys in uh, Georgia Thunderbolts that all knew each Mm -hmm. other in high school or knew each other in separate high schools in the same area. But that's just an awesome thing to hear. And know like A lot of, you know, sometimes you hear stories of friends going off somewhere to start a band and some of them come back and, you know, only one or two guys stick it out or whatever. You know, the big bad record companies back then are saying, well, this guy's a star and (laughs) these guys, they can't cut it. You know, it's just so cool to see these these young guys, you know, that grew up together and especially brothers that, you know, they're going to stick it out. And no matter what, they keep going. And that's got to be an amazing telepathy telepathy that they have on stage
2: well that and just not beating the shit out of each other like brothers and bands used to be whether it's the black crows or oasis or the kinks right like right, the exactly. new generation of brothers and bands they don't beat each other up
1: right well i think they're probably you know learning from those examples that the music is more important
2: <laughs> it kind of ruins everything you start right, doing that right.
1: and on that note with the music being more important always remember that southern rock is reverent and blues is blood we'll see you next time